All right. Thank you, Michael. And now as we jump into uh, God's Word today, um, before I do so, I just, I got to give a huge thank you. We had a massive team of people last Sunday who put on an absolutely phenomenal, pretty last minute tech mania event in our parking lot. Can we just give those people a huge round of applause? Man. You know, Shelby and I and our family, we were still in quarantine having come back from down south. And so we just sat on top of the hill and watched the whole thing. And my kids, kids kept saying, Daddy, can we go watch the party? Can we go watch the party? Because that's, that's exactly what it was. You guys took a less than ideal situation with COVID and you poured God's joy all over it. It was awesome. Thank you so much for the ways. I love the ways this church continues. No matter what's going on, we consistently say, hey, what's the solution? How can we continue to show God's love no matter what comes our way? So well done, everybody. And today, um, we're going to open up the book of Acts. Yet again, we actually only have a few more weeks left in this book. Um, And we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 21, which is pretty action-packed. Um, and while you're turning there, though, I, just by show of hands, how many of it, you in here would label yourself a serious, if not hardcore, Red Sox fan? All right, we got a few. We got a few. Okay. Online, if you want to just kind of put one of those little, like, hand emojis in the comments or something, that's fine. Um, how many of you, maybe hardcore is a bit too much, But you say, yeah, I'm still definitely a Red Sox fan. A lot more hands there. Okay, that's fair enough. That's fair enough. Now, for you guys, for the Red Sox fan, I'm about to show a picture on the screen. But before I do, I want you to think, once this picture shows up, what is the first word or phrase that comes to your mind? Okay, this is for Red Sox fans only. I'm going to show a picture and tell me the first word or phrase that comes to your mind. Ready? Ready? Go. It's a cute kid. You're booing a cute kid. Look at that smile. Look at it. Yeah, I know. I know. There's something about the logo, the pinstripes that just reacts. There's something bitter deep inside of you, right? A hundred years ago, it was Babe Ruth being sent to New York, the curse of the Bambino. It was Aaron Boone hitting that home run in 2003 that kept the Red Sox out of the World Series. It's Johnny Damon deflecting to the enemy. And it was when A-Rod tried, keyword, to take down Veritech, Right? This is why it's one of the all-time greatest rivalries in sports that I can show up a picture of a cute kid and you guys are still, ah! Isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting? Now, any Yankees fans in here? I'm just kidding. No one's going to raise their hands. (laughs) Don't worry. Jesus still loves you. Jesus still loves you. Now, imagine for a second, though, that uh, you as a Red Sox fan, you go into Fenway Park. I know, sad moments. 
Let's get that out of the way, though. But just imagine for a second that you're at a Yankees-Red Sox game. You sit down. You got your seat. You're pumped. Big game. And all of a sudden, this guy comes, and he sits down right next to you. And this guy has on a Red Sox hat, but a Yankees jersey. And you look at this dude, and you say, bro, what are you? I mean, it's an indisputable law of nature. You can't be pro-Red Sox and Yankees at the same time. You can't, you can't be pro-Yankees and pro-Red Sox at the same time. Like, like you're either one or the other. you got to pick. And you ask him, and he seems like a perfectly logical person. He says, yeah, I like both teams. And so you steal his hot dog, you call security, and you say, get out of here, man. I don't know what you are. Now, some of you are thinking, where in the world is he even going with this today? Well, in Acts chapter 21, we see Paul. He comes to the city of Jerusalem. But in Jerusalem, the Jews there, their mindset is, if you're pro-Jewish, you're anti-Gentile. If you're pro-Gentile... You're anti-Jewish. You can't be one or the other. And so we have this Jewish missionary to the Gentiles who's coming into Jerusalem. And he's basically wearing a Red Sox hat and a Yankees jersey. And they're thinking, I'm sorry, we don't have any categories for this guy. And the response is not so kind. So we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 21 together. Pick up there with me. To give you a little background, Paul is bringing a large financial gift to the poor in Jerusalem from the Gentile churches, ironically. But yet, as he is doing this, he is is warmly greeted by the Christian leaders. But they tell him, hey, just so you know, there are some rumors and misunderstandings going on everywhere about you. you got to be careful. And they said, well, we got a plan for you to try to keep you safe, but we'll see if it actually works. Works. So that's Acts chapter 21, starting at verse 19. Uh, if you want to follow along on the screen, you can do that as well. But as we read this, we're going to read a good bit. But I want you to ask two questions as we're reading this. Number one, how does Paul respond? Okay, that's crucial. Zero in on that. How does Paul respond in the midst of such a divisive situation? And number two, if we were in Paul's shoes, how would you be tempted to respond? That takes it home a little bit, all right? So Acts chapter 21, starting at verse 19, follow with me. Paul greeted them, this is the the Christian leaders, leaders, and reported in detail what God had done among the Gentiles throughout his ministry, the Gentiles being Greeks, Roman world. When they heard this, they praised God. Then they said to Paul, you see, brother... How many thousands of Jews have believed, and all of them are zealous for the law. They have been informed, or misinformed, that you teach all the Jews who live among the Gentiles to turn away from Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or live according to our customs. What shall we do? Here's their plan. They will certainly hear what we have, that we, you have come, so do what we tell you. There are four men with us who have made a vow. Take these men, join in the purification rites, and pay their expenses so that they have their heads shaved. Then everyone will know there is no truth in these reports about you, but that you yourself are living in obedience to the law. 
As for the Gentile believers, we have written to them our decision that, we, that they should abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. If, if that's confusing to you, uh, you can go back and read Acts 15 uh, or listen to the sermon from Acts 15. It'll explain what that means. The next day, Paul took the men and purified himself along with them. Then he went to the temple to give notice of the date when the days of purification would end and the offering would be made for each of them. All right, here's when it gets dicey. When the seven days were nearly over, some Jews from the province of Asia saw Paul at the temple. They stirred up the whole crowd and seized him, shouting, Fellow Israelites, help us! This is the man who teaches everyone everywhere against our people and our law in this place. And besides, he has brought Greeks into the temple and defiled this holy place. They had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, in the city with Paul and assumed, assumed that Paul had brought him into the temple. The whole city was aroused, and people came running from all directions, seizing Paul. They dragged him from the temple, and immediately the gates were shut. While they were trying to kill him, news reached the commander of the Roman troops that the whole city of Jerusalem was in an uproar. He at once took some officers and soldiers and ran down to the crowd. When the rioters saw the commander and his soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. The commander came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. Then he asked, Who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd shouted one thing, some another, and since the commander could not get at the truth because of the uproar, he ordered that Paul be taken into the barracks. When Paul reached the steps and the violence of the mob was so great, he had to be carried by the soldiers. The crowd that followed him kept shouting, get rid of him. I don't have this next part on the screen, but I just want you to listen for a second. As the soldiers were about to take Paul into the barracks, he asked the commander, may I say something to you? Do you speak Greek? He replied. Aren't you the Egyptian who started a revolt and led 4,000 terrorists out into the wilderness some time ago? Totally misunderstanding there. Paul answered, I am a Jew from Tarsus and Cilicia, a citizen of no ordinary city. Please let me speak to the people. After receiving the commander's permission, Paul stood on the steps and motioned to the crowd. When they were all silent, he said to them in Aramaic, which is their native dialect, Brothers and fathers, listen now to my defense. Pray with me as we jump in. Actually, just pray this after me. Say, God, open my heart, open my mind, change my life. In Jesus' name, amen. Anybody a little confused after all that we just read? <laughs> if so, that's okay. That's all right, don't worry. We'll walk through it step by step. But first, why were the Jerusalem Jews so out of their minds angry toward Paul? Why? Yeah, I mean, I, we get there's some rumors floating around, but like their response was so like out of control, angry, violent. They were trying to lynch him on the spot. Why? And why is this so crucial for us to look at in our own day, in our own time? Well, let me say this, and then I'll, I'll explain it in a second. Fear, anger, and pain will shut the door on people Jesus is trying to reach. Let me say that again. Fear, anger, and pain will shut the door on people Jesus is trying to reach. I'll explain that. But first, why were the Jerusalem Jews so explosive here? We need a little background. 
in order to understand their mindset and where they were coming from. You know, there was a combination of different things that was this recipe for reactivity. Number one, for decades, the Jewish people were personally and collectively on the receiving end of a lot of trauma and pain by the Gentiles. The Greeks branded their pagan ways on Jewish culture. The vile Romans pilfered their pockets and did unspeakable things to their heroes. Many Jews experienced firsthand the humiliation at the hands of a Roman guard. It wasn't just collective, it was personal. And that collective and personal pain and trauma intensified then a very real fear of what the Gentile influence would now do to their nation, their culture, their kids' generation. They heard what the Romans did behind closed doors in the temple. They knew about the child sacrifices, the prostitution, the way they used blood for a Jew that was detestable. All the Gentiles stood for in their mind was perversion, twisted. Their anger, their fear were just buttressed by this view they had of them. But on top of that, let's not forget that the Jews knew that it was never supposed to be this way. God told them all the way back right after delivering their forefathers from slavery in Egypt. God told them that they were going to be his treasured possession among all peoples, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And so you see, that's what they were supposed to be. So the pain, the fear, was was now buttressed by this righteous cause. They knew it wasn't supposed to be this way. So when you combine these things together, pain, fear, righteous indignation, now in their minds, it's us Versus them. If you are pro-Jewish, you're anti-Gentile. The two can't mix. The Jewish media narrative was worshipers of the one true God versus the detestable idol worshipers. It was morality versus perversion. Either you're with us in God or you're against us. And if you're not with us, we shut the door to you. Now... When you see a guy come into town who's a Jewish missionary to the Gentiles, who's pro-Jewish and pro-Gentile, they had no categories for this guy. Now, of course, when we talk about our own culture, we, we, we don't have that us versus them problem today, do we? No. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. And it's not just in sports. (laughs) It feels like in our own culture that every issue has only two passionate sides. That's all you got. It's either candidate A, candidate B. Either you're liberal, you're conservative. Either you're pro-mask, you're anti-mask. Either you're pro-racial equality, pro-law enforcement. Is it getting real yet? And all of these things are important And they deal with real human lives. And we're passionate about them because they matter. And we should be passionate about them. And we should find ways to work toward effective change in these areas. 
And we should, as Christians, think biblically about how we respond and how we view these things. But the point of the sermon today is not to to advocate for one side or the other. It's just to simply point out this this phenomenon that's in our culture, that that us versus them mentality is not about how can we work toward effective change. It's how can we demonize the other side. It got quiet, didn't it? Today's culture isn't just passionate. It's hurt. It's afraid. It's angry. It's us versus them. And if you're them, we shut the door to you. I find that like the Jews, the most passionate of stances oftentimes are tied to a very real pain, fear, and or righteous cause. A man who loses his job at a factory to another company overseas. He lost his livelihood for his family. He's afraid of what's going to happen to his community. And then somebody votes for a candidate who wants to take more job overseas. Now it's personal. Or if I have a kid who's immunocompromised. And I think masks are a way that we can protect my kid from getting sick. And I see somebody who's not wearing it. My first reaction is, it's personal, isn't it? And then when you add the fact, whatever our stances are, when you add on top of that, that there's this, just everybody's feeling this frustration boiling underneath the surface about a pandemic Doesn't it just feel like things are about to blow sometimes? It feels like a powder keg. With all that's going on, I find that our fuses are a lot shorter. Mine has been. And I'm not quick to love. I'm quick to lay the kibosh on somebody. When pain, fear, righteous indignation come together. It feels like we put nitroglycerin together. Boom. But why is this such a problem? If we're called to reach people in the love of Jesus, if we have a mission to share the love of Jesus and the truth of Jesus with this world, why is this a problem? Because when we shut out a person or a group of people, we don't know what to do when God wants to reach out to them. The pain, fear, sense of righteous cause for the first century Jews, that combination created this narrative in their mind that to be pro-Gentile is to be anti-Jew, anti-God, anti-God's law. The irony, though, they were pro-God's law, but they completely missed his heart. Didn't they? So when Paul, the Jewish missionary to the Gentiles, came in town, pro-Gentile, pro-Jew, don't have any combination for this guy, nothing but anger stirred up in them. It doesn't matter how pro-Jewish he was. If he was any pro-Gentile at all, there was no place for this man. And whenever... I'm so getting fired after today. Let's say it anyway. Whenever we peg somebody else as an enemy, 
We're quick to believe whatever rumors support our narrative, whether true or not. I got a couple amens from that. (laughs) Whenever we peg someone as an enemy, shut the door to them. We're quick to believe whatever rumors support their narrative, whether true or not. So what we see is there's this misinformation going on about Paul. See, Paul had gone to the Gentile world, but of course there's Jews in every town that he went to. And he was sharing Jesus with Jew and Gentile alike, calling for them to believe in Jesus, to trust in the grace of God alone to be the source that saves them. It's not their works, it's what God has done. He's preaching that everywhere. And he's telling the Gentiles, he's like, you guys don't have to become Jewish before you can follow Jesus. Like Jesus can transform your heart now. And they saw the Holy Spirit fill Gentile hearts as he went. But the rumor was that he was then telling Jews to forsake Moses. He wasn't. But they were telling Jews, yeah, you don't have to circumcise your kids. You don't have to follow Jewish customs. But he wasn't. But in their pain, fear, righteous indignation, they weren't interested in understanding. Paul or God's heart for the Gentiles. So when Paul shows up to Jerusalem, it says that there's these Jews from Asia, maybe the same ones who gave him trouble on his missionary journeys, and it says that they stirred up the crowd. That word stirred up, we see again uh, in, in verse 30. Some translations, it's, it's, they were aroused, right? But stirred up, I think is a good word. And if you translate that literally, it just means confused. They confused the crowd. In other words, they did not appeal to their reasoning or to their thinking. They went straight for their emotions, their anger, their pain. They were interested in getting at the animalistic side of them, not reasoning with them. And it says that as a result of that, the city was in such an uproar that the Romans couldn't even figure out what was true and what was not. And the people that took Paul and without even asking him or trying to understand, drug him out of the temple. And it says they shut the door, symbolizing he was out. In the name of God, they tried to snuff out a servant of God. Pain, fear, And anger cannot lead us toward an understanding of truth. Only confusion. Pain, fear, anger cannot lead us toward an understanding of truth. Only confusion. I mean, does does this not feel like this is the state of social media? News? Our own minds? It just feels like it's a blur of content of yelling, of, of, of 140 character Twitter statements. Everyone convinced they're right. And as a result of that, I don't know about you, but I, I just, I feel this heaviness that everyone is, it, it, we're, we're just, we're stirred up. We're confused. We're angry. And for mi- many of us, for good reasons, we're afraid. And with that heaviness, it starts to feel like the only way we can be is anxious. The only way we can be is reactive. And we start listening to men and women who support our narrative and our side of things, but we have stopped listening for truth. 
We're listening for what makes us feel good for a moment. What supports our already existent views. And as a result, we become so committed to a cause that we can miss God's heart. But is there another way? (laughs) You sure? Is there another way? Yes. It's not easy. But it's Jesus' way. Because when others are shutting doors, Jesus is building bridges. Paul said, he said to the Corinthians, he says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. What does he mean by that? Well, Christ was the very one who, even though we, the the world, rejected God and sought their own way, Christ became one of us in order to try to build a relationship with us. That even though the Messiah was misunderstood, falsely accused, and beaten, he did not react in anger. He responded in a way that was trying to give, he taught people, giving them deeper understanding. He healed people. And in love, he gave his life as the ultimate sacrifice for us. That Jesus was the one who was always working the bridging, the reconciling way. And so for Paul, who seeks to imitate and to walk Jesus' way, no matter how much Paul was misunderstood or even beaten, he focused on people's hearts. And as a result, Paul was willing to do whatever necessary to build a bridge as long as it did not violate his conscience. He was willing to do whatever necessary to build a bridge as long as it didn't violate his conscience. So, they get word that these rumors are going on about Paul. There's a lot of misinformation, false information, but it's stirring people up. And so the, the James and the early church leaders started working with Paul like, hey man, what can we do about this? How, how can we protect you while you're here? How, how might you still gain an ability to be able to speak to these people? And so they come up with this idea that there were four guys who were taking part in this religious purification ceremony. It was called a Nazarite vow. And for most Jews in Jerusalem, there was a lot of respect for anybody who went through this process or for anyone who paid for somebody else to go through this process. You, you were pious. You were religious. It's like, it's like, here was nor, like, here's what most Jews live. Like a Nazarite vow was like, man, you're going up and above that. Mad respect to you. And so Paul said, okay. I'll agree to go undergo that. He knew he wasn't doing the Nazarite vow, going through this purification process because it was a way to be saved. Like, right, like Paul knew, he said, I already belong to Christ. It's because of what Christ has done for me, not what I do that I'm saved. He knew that. But what he was trying to do was to say, hey, I am trying to, if you're not going to listen to me, then I'm at least going to give you a visual representation of where my heart really is. As Paul said later on, he said, To those under the law, being the Jewish people, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law. In other words, I know that I'm no longer controlled by the law. I have the Spirit of God within me. 
But if I need to show them that I'm willing to give up my rights and my freedoms in order to live as one under the law, in order to gain the ability to speak to them, I will. He says, I do this that I might win those under the law. In love, Paul didn't insist on the Jews becoming like him first before he spoke to them. He didn't insist on them coming to him or doing things his way. He says, I'm willing to do what I got to do in order to connect with them. I'm not being fake, but I am seeking to be what I, in order to gain favor to speak to them. He says, if I'm going to offend somebody, if I'm really going to offend somebody, then it better be on the basis of the cross. Nothing else. If I'm going to offend somebody, then it needs to be the message of Jesus that offends them. Nothing else. But as we read, he went through this whole process. The plan didn't work as they hoped. The Jews drug him out of the temple, attacked him, nearly killed him before Roman soldiers could rescue him and arrest him. It was so bad that the soldiers had to pick Paul up and literally carry him out of the crowd to remove him. Now, if you or I were nearly beaten to death, I know for me, my first response would be, well, I tried. I gave it my best shot. Have fun, like, like you, I'm done with you guys. But how does Paul respond? With his aching and bruised body, Paul asked the Roman guards in chapter 21, verse 39, he says, I beg you, permit me to speak to these people. And then he turns around. And in their native dialect, their language, he begins to share his story about how he was once zealous for the law like them. How he once even killed Christians. But how he met a man named Jesus on the road to Damascus who changed his life forever. Why did he share all of this? We didn't read that. That's all Acts 22. But why did he share all of this? To build a gospel bridge to their hearts. As Christ followers, we share this in common. We don't deserve to belong to him. But by his grace, we do. We once were enemies of God until Christ stepped over the dividing line between us and him in order to reconcile us, bring us into relationship with him. We deserve to be judged in our sin until Christ took our sin upon his shoulders and died in our place. We deserve to be submitted to death and eternal separation from God until Christ rose from the dead and shared his life with us. We deserve to have the door of God's presence shut in our faces until the moment Jesus died and that veil in the temple was torn in two, opening the way to God. And if that's who we are, how can we shut the door on anyone no matter what their political philosophy, their tribe, or their views. The world may be reacting in pain, fear, and anger, but we know another way. But how do we become a kind of church that builds bridges? Practically speaking, how do we do that? 
See, a church that builds bridges is quick to forgive, quick to listen, and always looking for ways to reach the heart. First, quick to forgive. Before we start saying, God, why don't you work in somebody else's heart? Do we allow him to search ours? As much as we want to control how much somebody else changes, we can't. But we can control how much we allow God to work in and change our own hearts. Oftentimes, our own anger, our frustration, our own feelings of us versus them and and the pegging people, it comes from our own feelings of pain, trauma, and fear. Doesn't it? Do we allow God to work out a process of forgiveness in our own hearts? Do we practice forgiveness consistently in our own lives? Martin Luther King said, Forgiveness does not mean ignoring what has been done or putting a false label on an evil act. It means rather that the evil act no longer remains a barrier to relationship. Before we can reach others, are we learning to pray as David did? Search me, O God, and know me. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Quick to forgive. But then quick to listen. Is that second, if we try to understand before reacting, we'll actually find more opportunities to connect. You know, for the first century Jews, they made assumptions about who Paul was. And they just reacted to that without checking facts or anything else. Because see, pain and fear, they activate this small little part of our brain called the amygdala. The amygdala is this tiny little part of our brain that processes pain, fear, and then activates fight or flight mode in us. And that's exactly what you see in Acts 21 is fight or flight mode for these first century Jews. But the the part of our brains that actually reason through things is the frontal lobe, mostly. I act like I really know what I'm talking about, like... I did a little research. <laughs> All right. So the frontal lobe is where we reason through things. That when we're tempted to react, we stop and we say, Whoa, what if instead of assuming I know this person based on limited data, what if I assume that I don't? What if I asked a couple questions before I reposted something or just went bitter and biting on somebody? What if I paused long enough to hear someone's story of pain, fear, anger before I reacted to them? Because see, one of the things that I think Paul saw, I think one of the reasons why he got up and started speaking to them in their own native dialect, I think because of the compassion of Jesus swelled up inside of him, he saw, he knew their pain He knew their trauma. He knew their anger. He knew their fear. And he knew the one who could speak to that. And as we were quick to forgive, quick to listen, third, then we find ways to reach the heart. I had a friend in high school who grew up very differently than me. Very different backgrounds, very different families. And this man, he was 
he was one opinionated dude. And for the longest time, he annoyed me. Man, but somehow, some way, like we became friends. And over time, we hung out. We shared stories. At times, we even went to church together. And slowly, over time, I began to see him as more than just the labels that I had slapped on him. I got to know, little by little, his fears, his values, his past. And in doing so, that, that, that built this foundation of mutual respect. Where I was able to share with him how Jesus had taken me, this, this anxious, fearful insecure, prideful person and how he was working to change my life. My friend knew I wasn't perfect. No way. Man, I pray he saw Jesus in me. When the world is shutting doors, Jesus is building bridges. So without compromising who we are or the convictions that God has given us, how can we build bridges? bridges. And I recognize it's not easy. And oftentimes our best attempts don't work like we think they will. Paul gave it his best shot, but they still drug him out of the temple. He spoke to them and he told them his story in their native language. He related with them. He built a bridge with them. But once he got to the part of his story in Acts 22 where he said, and God sent me to the Gentiles, what happened? They blew up all over again. And that can be extremely discouraging. Because we're like, well, why am I even trying so hard? If people are just going to reject me. And it's even more difficult when we're trying to build bridges with people we truly care about. Because we're afraid, what if I accidentally like, mess up the relationship? As I'm trying to speak to my kids, my family members, my close friends. Like, what if, what if they just reject me? And what if they're angry with me? That's real. That's real. But just because someone doesn't receive what you have to say does not mean you have failed. Our job is to consistently walk in the way of Jesus in all wisdom and love. As Paul put it, Him, Jesus, we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all whose energy? His energy. That he powerfully works within me. I know circumstances may not always seem bright. And I know things may not always turn out the way we hope they will. And there are times when it seems like the world is losing its ever-loving minds. But Jesus is still at work in and through us. And if we are quick to let him search our hearts, quick to seek to listen and understand, and if we're looking for ways to build bridges, he will show us how to navigate this time in history. When others are shutting doors, Jesus is building bridges. Will you pray with me? Father God, when I look at Paul's example consistently throughout the book of Acts, I am, it, <laughs> I don't know how Paul does it. His response to them, how with aching and bruised body, he consistently says, let me still tell you about Jesus. 
God, that, that is beyond my comprehension, but I realize that my job is not to just try to imitate the Jesus that Paul knew. My job is to actually get to know you myself. That you have made a way by your spirit that we can actually know you. And I pray, Father, that we will open our hearts to you. That you will show us and teach us one day at a time, one step at a time, how we can be a part of building bridges, of showing a different way than the reactionary way out of pain and anger. And that in doing so, God, that you might even use us to be people who help heal trauma, heal pain. That you show us how to speak love to fear. And God, how to speak peace to anger. God, how... There is time for righteous anger. Give us wisdom for when we are supposed to speak and act and speak boldly. God, but show us how to do all that we do in love. Because then we know that it's you who's leading us, not us. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for bridging the divide between us and you, Jesus. And giving your life and love for us. Show us how to lay our lives down for others. Start with me. In Jesus' name, amen.